Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life, so we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at www.christchapelcollege.org and on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. chapter 17. And, uh, and while you're turning there, um, just a little emo moment. I, uh, I was praying this morning. I'm a, I'm a three-wing four for all you Enneagram fans out there. And uh, every so often, my emo four-wing will kind of come out. And uh, man, I was just sitting there this morning praying about today, praying about uh, what you guys got going on uh, this, this week. And man, I just want you guys to know how grateful uh, I am for you guys uh, and just our whole staff. Uh, just so unbelievably grateful for you. Uh, it's not lost on me. There are so many phenomenal churches in Fort Worth, and the fact that you guys uh, call this place home and want to um, worship alongside us and be on mission with us is crazy. And when I think about like what my life might look like when I'm 70 years old and I'm sitting on a porch with my wife and we're just kind of reflecting on life, and I, I can't help but think that this season of life is just going to be a really, really sweet time. So anyway, I love you guys. I'm very uh, stoked, and I'm excited for uh, what God has in store next semester um, as we've been celebrating what he's been doing this semester. Um, but emo, over. Uh, let's go. Act 17. We are in the, uh, the last week of a series that we're calling How Do We Get Here? And the basic idea is that we're kind of trying to figure out how on earth did we end up here, right? I mean, it's 2019. We're in an abandoned bar in Fort Worth, Texas. We just finished singing songs in English about a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago in this tiny podunk town in Israel called Nazareth, right? And yet we are here singing his praises. We are talking about him. We are devoting our lives to following the teachings of this man. And, and we kind of center our whole lives on this idea that this one event, this one uh, death, burial, and resurrection that happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that's the thing that drives our lives in 2019 in Fort Worth, Texas. Like, how on earth did that happen, right? That's absolutely crazy. That's nuts. And so we've been walking through the book of Acts and, and kind of seeing, man, what did God do in the early church that led to the expansion of the kingdom of God? What did God do that led to the gospel um, spreading to the farthest corners of the earth? But we're not just kind of asking that question just to uh, kind of know, all right, how do we get here? But we're asking that question so we can figure out how do we keep it going? How do we continue to push the gospel forward? How do we continue to see the kingdom of God expand to the furthest corners of the earth? And so we've been kind of walking through all these different catalysts, all these things that God did that allowed the gospel to spread in order to figure out, man, how do we kind of adopt that and keep it going? And so today we're going to finish with um, the final catalyst, which I'm extremely excited about because the final catalyst that we're, we're going to see today is the ability to contextualize the gospel to the culture around us. Is this idea that, that the, the apostles, if, if we read the book of Acts, the apostles were actually phenomenal at being able to contextualize the gospel to the culture around them. And so if you're unfamiliar with kind of the, the, the phrasing of contextualization, um, contextualization is just the, the basic idea that we can step into a culture and we can show people how the gospel is relevant to that culture, right? So contextualization is not trying to make something irrelevant seem relevant. No, it is showing people how relevant this thing already is. You just don't know how relevant it is, 
right? It, it, it's stepping into a culture that thinks this might be irrelevant and, and kind of connecting the dots and showing them all the things that you crave, all the things that you long for, all the things that you are running to to find joy and fulfillment and satisfaction is actually found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not trying to make something irrelevant relevant and showing people how relevant the gospel is and has always been and always will be, right? And so what we're going to do today is talk about that because I think that um, that's so important for us to like, understand and be able to do, right? Like my goal and my, my dream would be for this to be a group of people that were just experts at being able to contextualize the gospel to the people around us. Because we are living in a culture where um, the gospel is becoming more and more irrelevant to the world around us, right? Like, I mean, what we believe, like, like if you were to ask the average person in the U.S. kind of what they think about this book, right, and what, what they think about the things of Jesus, odds are this is just this kind of ancient book that's full of do's and don'ts, and it's just kind of irrelevant, it's outdated, it's not really very pertinent to kind of what's going on in our culture here. And the reality is that's, that's not really what the Bible is. The Bible is this beautiful picture, this beautiful story of God's revelation of himself to us, God's revelation that, that shows us his plan for redemption, that, that shows how glorious he is in loving a people that consistently run and rebel and try to find joy and satisfaction and all these other things. And yet this God lovingly steps in and says, no, I'm going to give you myself. Because in knowing me, that's where life and joy is found. And we get to, to see just the fullness of that in this book. And so um, for us, we believe that this is the most relevant thing. Anything that we chase, anything that we crave in life can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for us, I want to figure out how do we become masters at contextualizing the gospel to the culture around us. So here's how we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to read this, uh, this passage of scripture in Acts 17, and I want us to figure out how we do it because Paul is about to put on a master class, just a master class on how to contextualize the gospel. So let's start uh, Acts 17, starting in verse 16. It says this, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, which, which we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. All right, so start right there. I, I want us to spend the majority of our time talking about the sermon that Paul is about to preach. But there's two specific things that I want to just kind of point out um, in this first little passage that I think is extremely important for us to understand, right? Um, the first thing that I want to kind of point out, the first little observation that we see in this, this initial text is that Paul had a burden for the culture around him, right? Um, in verse 16, it says that, that Paul shows up to Athens, right? And he looks around and he sees that it is a city full of idols, a city where it's a very religious group of people. that They, they are worshipers, but they're just worshiping the wrong things. They're, they're worshiping all these different idols. And Paul shows up and something in his spirit is provoked, Something in him says, oh, they're missing it. Something in him, like there's just this burden for the culture around them. 
right? And when, when I read this verse this week, I, to be completely honest, it was very convicting to me because when I really think about my own life, I talk to people who miss it all the time. And to be completely honest, there's not a burden that I always have. Right? I can have conversations all week with people that might not be worshiping like kind of false idols in the sense of these kind of pagan temples or altars, but people who are chasing after the idols of success or power or status or comfort or acceptance, people who, who bow down at the altar of all these things that they believe are going to bring them fulfillment and satisfaction, and I know where the truth is. I know where life and joy is found, yet when I hear them talk about their idols, there's not a burden. There's something in me that just doesn't, I'm like I'm just kind of indifferent to it. But not Paul. Paul. Paul hears this. He sees people missing it. And he says, God, we have to do something. There's this burden that, that, that's on his heart for these people. And maybe you're in the exact same boat as me. Maybe you walk along seats with people every single day that are missing it. They're just absolutely missing. They're trying to find joy in all these things that don't provide joy, yet there's not a burden. And I don't know about you, but, but when I just kind of began to think this week about, you know, why, why is that? Why do I sometimes just lack a burden? Why isn't my spirit provoked for those who are missing it? I think if I'm honest, I think sometimes I don't think God is that good, and I don't think sin is that bad. If I'm honest, I don't, I don't, I don't think God is that good, and I don't think sin is that bad. I think I, I talk a big game about loving God, worshiping God, thinking that our whole lives should be centered around knowing and following him. But if I really think about it, there's sometimes when I talk to people who are, quote, missing it, I'm like, I don't know, maybe they're onto something. Maybe there's something that they're experiencing that I'm not, that, man, maybe, maybe I have it wrong. Right? And, so, and so I don't have a burden because maybe I don't actually believe that God is as good as I say that he is. Or on the flip side, maybe I don't think that sin is that bad. Yeah, like I know what the Bible says, but maybe I don't truly believe in my heart that our sin separates us from the God of the universe. That as Paul says in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. I think there are times when I just don't believe that. And when I don't believe that God is very good or sin is very bad, that there's some crazy consequences, eternal consequences for our sin, when I kind of fall in that trap, then yeah, I don't have a burden. But that's not how Paul thought, because Paul had a burden. Paul understood the goodness of God and the weightiness of sin, and so something in him says we have to do something. And so Paul didn't just have a burden. Paul took action, and that's the second thing that I want to show you in this first little chunk, is that Paul had a burden for the culture around him, but his burden moved him to action. That Paul's burden moved him to action. What's, what's crazy to me is that in verse 17, it says that he just immediately began talking to people. Right? He saw this, and he was burdened. Something in his spirit was provoked, and he just starts talking to anyone who would listen to him. He just starts walking around the marketplace, and he's just talking to people left and right, just telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. Right? Paul, Paul didn't have a, have a kind of burden and say, I don't know, man, let's stop. Let's pray about it. Let's see if we need to step into this. Let's see who we should talk to. No, he just went and did it. Um, he just went and talked to people. Uh, I have a buddy named Jeff, and, and he was telling me the other day that when his brother got saved, he had this kind of crazy transformation, and he all of a sudden, his kind of first instinctual reaction when he got saved was to go to the mall and to start talking to random strangers about Jesus. Yeah, and we laugh because we don't do that, right? And so he, he hears that, like, like he gets saved, and all of a sudden he's like, man, I just want to like tell everybody I know about Christ. And so he just starts walking up to strangers at the mall, and he's that kind of weird, awkward guy that just starts talking to people at the mall. 
And, and it's so weird. When he talks about his story now, he says, yeah, I, I get saved, and I have this burden for everyone who didn't know Jesus. And so I started telling everybody about him because I didn't know that's what Christians don't do. He said, my, my kind of assumption is that if we really believe this, we would go tell everybody about it. And so it wasn't on my radar yet that, that that's not actually what we do. We don't actually tell people about it. We talk to each other about it, and we pray for those who don't know, but we don't actually go tell others about it. And when he said that, I was like, because that's so true, right? Like, we, we, we talk about this burden. Even if we have a burden, sometimes it doesn't move us to action. But if we truly have a burden, there should be something in us that moves us to action, that, that moves us to a place where we have to do something about it, right? To think of it in another way. When, when I was in college, um, I saw this girl every week uh, at this crosswalk walking to class. And this girl happened to be blind. And this, uh, this crosswalk had, like, the sound that said, you know, walk. But it didn't have the actual, like, name of the street. So one day she's, she's standing there, and the crosswalk goes off. It tells her to walk, and she begins to walk. The problem is that it wasn't for her lane. It was for this lane over here. So this girl who can't see just starts walking into oncoming traffic. Now, everyone who was at the crosswalk immediately had a burden for this girl. Right? Everyone saw that she was walking into oncoming traffic and has no idea. So everyone has a burden. But how do you feel like that burden manifested itself? You think the burden manifested itself and people sitting back saying, this is so sad, guys. Like, she's, like, she's going to get hit by a car. She has no clue. Like, ah, mm. I just wish that someone would do something about it. Man, hey, you know what? Let, let's stop. Let's pray. I just feel like God's laid out on my heart. Let's just pray that someone steps in and saves her. No, like, like, like no one sat there. Everyone ran into the street. And people ran into the street, grabbed her, and pulled her back to the sidewalk. Why? Because you don't let blind people walk into traffic, right? No, I mean, I mean like, let's... Let's, let's be honest, like you're a horrible person if you let a blind person walk into traffic. Yet spiritually, we do that all the time. From a spiritual standpoint, we let people blinded by their sin walk into oncoming traffic all the time, and we don't do anything about it. And so the reality is that if we truly have a burden, there should be something within us that moves us to action, that, that runs into the street, pulls them back, and say, let me show you where life is found. It's not found in the middle of the street where you're going to get hit by a bus. It's found over here. Right? And, so, and so I point those two things out because the more that Paul talks, the more that Paul's kind of walking around doing all these things, what happens is that everyone's like, all right, bro, we, we need to just sit down and hear what you actually have to say. We keep hearing these crazy things about this dude that was dead, then he wasn't dead anymore. And so, man, like, what are you actually saying? Right? And so his persistence, he's just kind of walking around and just telling everybody he, he, he can find about Jesus manifest in people wanting to actually know what on earth are you actually talking about, right? So what's, what we're about to read next is uh, one of, I think, the greatest contextualizations of the gospel. Paul, Paul steps up, and, and he's about to preach this sermon to this group of people um, at the Areopagus, this, uh, this, this hill oftentimes uh, referred to as Mars, Mars Hill in Athens. Um, and so I want to read this to us, and then I want to pull out three specific things that Paul does that I think for us, if we want to be people that, that have this burden that moves us to action and results in our ability to contextualize the gospel to the people around us, then I, I want to see what we can learn from what Paul Paul knows. So this is uh, Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, 
I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the, ob the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should see God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. All right, start right there. So it may not initially sound like this, but, but this is a phenomenal contextualization of the gospel. Paul bringing the gospel to these people and being able to speak their language in just a phenomenal way. And so um, I want to point out three specific things that we see here um, that I think would be incredibly uh, helpful for us to, to understand as we kind of try to go contextualize the gospel ourselves. And the first is this. Paul starts with something they care about. Paul starts by addressing something that they care about. You see, Paul recognizes that this is a very religious group of people, right? So like he understands that they're already religious. He's not having to kind of step in and try to convince them to follow some God. No, they have a ton of gods, right? And so Paul understands their culture. He understands that, hey, you guys care a lot about religion. And so because they care a lot about the gods, they don't want to ever offend any of the gods, and so specifically, because they don't want to offend any of the gods, what they've done is they've created this altar to the unknown God, just in case there's a God they're unaware of. They don't want to offend that God, so we'll just kind of have this blanket altar to the unknown God that's kind of a junk drawer altar for all the gods that maybe we missed along the way, right? And so Paul sees that, and he says, oh, that's something that they care about. So Paul steps in, and, and he initially says, hey, so I, I, I noticed something. You guys worship this, this altar. You worship this unknown God, right? And you guys care a lot about this, this unknown God because you don't want to offend the unknown God, right? And they're like, yeah, I have fantastic news. I know who that God is. I know who that God is. That, that God is the God that I worship. He is the God that I've, I've been talking about all week. He is the God above all gods. He has created all things in him. Everyone has life and breath. I mean, he is the God of all gods, who you know as the unknown God, I know as the God Yahweh, right? And he begins to enter into the world by addressing something that they care a lot about, right? And I bring that up because that is incredibly strategic. It's incredibly strategic for him to enter into the conversation thinking, man, what do this person, what do these people care about, right? And so for us, when we um, come to a place where we want to begin to contextualize the gospel or allow people to see how relevant the gospel is for their lives, we have to come to a place first where we understand what people care about. Right? We have to have this understanding of under, like, knowing people in such a way where we understand what they care about. And here's why. 
we are inherently selfish and consumeristic. We are inherently selfish and consumeristic. We care about things as long as those things benefit us or pertain to us in some way. And we have come to a place, and, and I, I would argue it's always been this, this way, we are consumeristic in our faith, right? Like, like we care about the word of God, but we care more about the word of God when we know that the word of God has something to say about our lives, right? So prime example, let's say we... We, we end today, you guys go off, you have, have an amazing break, you come back, you're excited for the spring, I step on stage and I say, hey guys, I'm so excited for what God has for us, God's laid this burden on my heart, and so for the next 14 weeks of the spring, we are going to be in a sermon series about parenting. Guys, I'm super stoked about it, it's going to be incredible, the Bible has so much to say about parenting, and so man, Buckle up, because for the next 14 weeks, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a godly parent. And I'm just so excited for what the Lord has for us and just diving into his word to talk about being a godly parent. Look, you guys are awesome, but there's a good chunk of you that are going to leave and never come back, right? Like, if I do 14 weeks on parenting in this room, a lot of y'all are leaving and you're never coming back. You know why? Because the overwhelming majority of you are not parents, right? And so although we say, man, I care a lot about the word of God, to be completely honest, this room probably won't care about the word of God as long as we're talking about parenting, right? Not that you don't care about the word of God, but there's something in us that says, no, I want to know what the word of God says as long as it pertains to what's pertinent to my life. Because parenting is a very biblical concept, but it doesn't really pertain to the college experience, right? And so naturally speaking, like we are so consumeristic in the way that we approach our faith. And I'm in the exact same boat. Like I will scroll through pod, podcast after podcast, and based on the title, it's like, ah, that doesn't really apply to me. Ah, no, that doesn't. Oh, nope. Yep. Perfect. Right? And I pick like sermons to listen to based on what I'm walking through. Right? So we are all kind of inherently consumeristic. So we long to know what does the word of God say about where we currently are in our lives. Right? And so Paul understood that. He says, hey, this is something that you guys care about. And the reality is we all care about certain things that pertain to where we are in life. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just a thing. And if we can understand that, then we can enter into the world of people by being able to, to talk about stuff that they actually want to know about. So the question is, man, do you know people in a way where you understand what motivates them? Do you understand what makes them afraid? Do you understand their motivations and their fears and what drives them? Do you understand what they care about on a deep level? Because when we can understand what people care about on a deep level, people tend to listen. Right? Paul understood that what they cared about was the altar to the unknown God. But when you talk to your friends or your family, to your parents, to your roommates, to the people that you're in organizations with, do you understand them in a way where you know what drives them? whether it's success or money or power or grades or acceptance or relationships, do you understand what they crave in a way where you can enter into a conversation based on what they care about? And, and I don't mean this in like a manipulative way, trying, trying to manipulate a conversation. I mean just knowing people, knowing what drives a person in order to say, hey, I understand what drives you. Now let me kind of step in and let's talk about how the gospel addresses the things that you crave. Right? There is a receptivity when we can come to a place where we understand uh, what a person cares about. So the first thing that, that we see is that Paul talks about what people care about. But the second thing is this. The second thing is that Paul uses the culture around him to back up the truth of the gospel. 
Paul uses the culture to back up the truth of what he's saying. Um, if you notice, in, in all the sermons in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and Peter specifically, they always kind of use as illustrations, they use uh, Old Testament texts. They use Hebrew scripture to kind of prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. And that makes total sense because normally they're talking to Jewish audiences. They're talking to people who, in their culture, they care about the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures hold some kind of authoritative weight. But Paul doesn't do that here. In fact, Paul doesn't quote scripture one time in this entire sermon. What does he quote? He quotes uh, Greek philosophers and Greek poets. Right In verse uh, 28, as he's talking, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, which is a quote from a philosopher. And he says, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he quotes another Greek poet. So, so Paul understands the Greek culture well enough. He's savvy enough in their own culture that he can use their culture to back up what he's saying to say, hey, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who thinks this is who this God is. Your own poets have been saying it. Your own philosophers have been saying it for years. Your own people have been backing up. I'm just connecting the dots. I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm just trying to connect the dots that allow you to see that what I'm saying is true, right? And so for us, the question is, do we have an ability to be culturally savvy enough to be able to take the culture around us and use it to back up what the gospel has been saying for millennia, right? So example, one of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called um, Armchair Expert. Any Armchair Expert fans in the room? Y'all need to get some culture. Okay, yeah, two of y'all in the back, love it. So anyway, Armchair Experts is a podcast where Dak Shepard of Being Married to Kristen Bell fame interviews all of his like celebrity friends, right? And what is so interesting to me about this show is every single like podcast episode, he'll sit down and he'll ask them the same question. He'll say, hey, when you got like rich and famous and you made all this money and you became this like crazy celebrity, did you think that would solve all of your problems? And everyone goes, yeah, 100%. I thought, I mean, if I had money and fame and status and all that stuff, I'd, like, I'd be set for life. And he's like, yeah, I did too. Did it fix anything? And all of them say, no. It just left me lacking. Man, like I was convinced that all I needed in, in, in the world was money and fame and success. And I got it. And I just kind of found myself feeling empty. And then they just kind of sit and they talk about how much that sucks. They don't ever come to a solution. It's just like, yeah, I know. Oh, well, right? And, like, and, and, and I hear it. And it, it literally breaks my heart. Because what they're talking about is what the Word of God has been saying for millennia. Right? Like what they talk about, this idea that all the fame and money and success that it doesn't satisfy is what, Song, is what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes thousands of years ago. Solomon, the, the, the wealthiest, most powerful king that Israel has ever known, sat down and wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. And in this book, he says, I've done everything under the sun and it doesn't satisfy. Man, I've had more money than I could count. I've thrown the craziest parties. I've had the best food. I've had the best wine. I've had more sex with the most beautiful people on the, like in the, in the planet. Like I've accomplished more things. I've built more things. I've, I've done like anything you could possibly want to do in your lifetime. I've done it. And guess what? It doesn't satisfy. And he concludes by saying, what brings joy and life and satisfaction is knowing and being known by God. I've done it all. And I'm writing to tell you 
that knowing and being known by God, that is the source of life and joy and satisfaction, right? And so oftentimes there are so many things. If we just look at the culture around us, our culture will tell us what the gospel has been saying for a long, long time. And the question is, do we have the ability to understand the culture, to, to use the culture to back up what the truth of the gospel says, that, that the source of life and joy is knowing and being known by Christ, by walking with Christ. And so for us, again, that is the, the, the challenge to, to know culture in such a way. But the third thing is this. The third thing is this. He's bold. Paul's bold. Right? Paul uh, understands the people. He, he understands what they care about. He understands the culture well, well enough to kind of back up what the gospel's saying. But he's also bold. He's just bold to, to just drop some gospel bombs, honestly. Like he, he, he walks through all these things, and then he finishes by, by, by saying, look, there's coming a day. He says, the times of ignorance, God has overlooked. He says, you've been ignorant, and God's overlooked it. God's been patient. But now... He commands that all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, look, here's the thing. There's coming a day where we're all gonna be judged, but you don't have to be judged. You can repent because Christ, the one who is coming to judge, has also laid down his life for you. So, someone, so if the wages of sin is death, someone or something is going to die. So either you can allow Christ to die that death for you or you can take it on yourself. But Paul's, not, Paul's not wavering. Paul, Paul's not trying to be culturally savvy in a way where he waters down the message of the gospel. No, he is bold. He, he's holding no punches. And I think for us, this is where it gets really, really tough for us because it's tough to be bold. I think, I think, honestly, it's pretty easy to be culturally savvy. I think it's pretty easy to know people well enough to kind of know what drives them, to know their motivations and their fears, to, to kind of enter into that conversation. But it's difficult to be bold to step in and say, hey, I think you're missing it. And I love you enough to say, like, I think you are searching for life and joy in all the wrong places. You are trying to find fulfillment in places that don't have the capacity to fulfill. I think what you need is Jesus. And that, that, takes, that takes some guts. That takes some courage to actually step in and be bold. But what we see from Paul is, yes, be culturally savvy, but also be bold enough to be honest, to be honest about the implications of what the gospel means. And, and the thing about that is that I think one of the reasons why we're not bold is because we fear rejection. I think we're just so afraid sometimes, man, what if I amble? What if I, I'm, I'm just honest and, and they just reject me? That could happen. That could happen. In fact, we know that it can because that's exactly what happened to Paul. If we keep going, look at how everyone responds in verse 32. So now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed. Right? He said, some mocked. Some wanted to hear more about it. Some were intrigued, and then others believed. And in my experience, that's pretty par for the course. Right? And I think, I mean, this is so encouraging to me because man, Paul just masterfully 
preached this sermon to a bunch of people in a foreign con- context, and he knew their culture in such a way. He brought it so close to home, and some of them thought he was out of, out of his mind. Some thought he was absolutely crazy, and they mocked him. But some believed. And through his boldness, on this day, some people's lives changed forever. And so for us, if we are bold enough to actually step in and have those conversations, we might get mocked. We might get rejected. But others might believe. They might believe and their life might be changed forever. And so the question for us is, are we willing to risk rejection for the sake of some believing? Are we willing to risk rejection for, those, for the sake of those who might come to believe? And the reality is, the contextualization of the gospel being rejected is not, it's not new to us. It's not new to our culture. It's been happening for a long time. Because 2,000 years ago, we saw the greatest form of contextualization the world has ever known. Because 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and bone, and he was born in a manger. 2,000 years ago, when this child was born in a manger in Bethlehem, what happened is that God was no longer a concept or an idea. He was a person. The love of God became manifest. It was so relevant. It came to the culture. It was there. You could see him. You could touch him. You could God in the flesh, right? In fact, in the book of John, Philip says this, and and this is how Christ responds. I think it's up here on the screen. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. He says, all we want to do is see the Father. And Jesus said to him, have you Or have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus shows up on the scene and says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you know me, you know God. If you've walked alongside me, you've walked alongside God. If you know my character, you know the character of God. This is the greatest form of contextualization. God has never become more relevant. He entered into our world, but guess what happened? Some mocked. Some were intrigued. And others believed. And the reality is that when we look at Jesus, we see God coming from heaven to earth, God contextualizing his love for us in the person of Jesus, and even walking with Jesus on the earth, some rejected. Some mocked but others believed. And if your life has been changed by believing in the gospel, then you understand the freedom that comes from knowing and walking with Christ, the joy and the life that come from walking and knowing with Christ. And so what I desire most for us, is, I know this is a crazy, you got finals, you got all this other stuff, uh, being really good at contextualizing the gospel might not be too high on your priority list. It's like, let's, let's knock out accounting first and then we'll talk about contextualizing, contextual. Yeah, you know. But here's the point. You guys are about to go home for three to four weeks. And, and I would love for you to be praying about, man, what are ways that I get to contextualize the gospel when I go home? When I go home with my friends from high school, when I go home to see my family, when I go home just to see others, when, when I just get to go home, or maybe it's this week. Maybe, man, there, there's someone that God has put a burden on your heart for and you've gone all semester long, and you've never really had a conversation. You've seen them, and you know that, man, they are searching for fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in places that are just never going to bring it. And you're like, man, I, I got one week 
to step into it. I've got one week to say something about it. Man, I would, I would encourage you, man, be bold. Step into it. Have those conversations. Step in to try to contextualize the gospel for the people around you. And I believe that if we are bold enough to speak the truth, some might mock, but others might believe. And my hope is that we have a longing to see people come to know Jesus in a way where they believe that, man, we're willing to step out. We're willing to be bold even if we face rejection. Let me pray. Father, you are good. God, you, um, you are so kind to us. You're so kind in so many ways, but Father, you were kind in the fact that 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to walk among us, to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so Father, may that truth be something that stirs our heart, that we know that you are not an idea, you're not a concept. You are the Father who loves us, and through your Son, we see the most relevant picture of how much you love us. That while we run, while we stray, you chase after us. And may we be a people who can find a way to contextualize the gospel in such a way that when people interact with us, they have a better picture of who you are and your love for us. We love you. It's your Son's name we pray. Amen.